How can we better equip ourselves to take on the new day, our goals, and the world? How do we stoke our inspiration? By dropping in, we'll hear from credible experts on ways to thrive in this environment. As persons trying to cope, as workers learning to pivot in our careers, and as those curious about life, wellness, family, healing, and humor, we'll learn by sharing stories. Like the watering hole, dropping in is a communal place. People who've had the courage to tell their stories offer the nuggets they've gathered along the way. They bring us the spark to confront what matters. Everybody everywhere is on a hero's journey of trying to survive and do well. Stories from these diverse sources pave the way, even if the paths are new or unknown. Drop in with us to discover the roots and where we go from here. And now, here's our host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. We're in the midst of a cliffhanger, just like the one in A Killing Fire. It's a book that gives an escape, a diversion, and just in time comes Faye Snowden, author of the crime fiction story, A Killing Fire, published by Flame Tree Press. The main character, Raven Burns, is an African-American cop with, shall we say, difficult past, but she's a certifiable badass. Welcome to the show, Faye Snowden. Oh, thank you for having me. This is great. I love your intro, by the way. Well, I loved your book. I'm going to try to be unbiased, okay, but I'm just sort of keeping it on a slow simmer, but I I have lots to delve into as a result of reading it. Uh, Let's talk about creating flawed characters. Uh, Raven is dealing with her dark side. She's a woman strong. She's a cop. Uh, She's complicated. You could take her home to mama at Thanksgiving, but you might might not get into every conversation possible. Um, I just want to, you know, touch on this because it really creates like a, a heartbeat, a throbbing character. It's in stark contrast to the perfect hero that none of us can ever measure up to. And you yourself are the secretary of an organization called Sisters in Crime. And what is not Mm -hmm. to like about Sisters in Crime? Uh, But the real question here is, how do you go about entering Raven's space to create her? Yeah, and that's an interesting question. And um, when I say I love the intro, I love the intro to your show. Um, because that intro is kind of how I think about my characters, um, that people that are on these lifelong hero journeys to kind of learn how to be a person. I think we're all learning that. And um, the way I created Raven was, and, and I, I came from a very difficult childhood. Um, sometimes I like, uh, I can tell the story and I'm fine. And sometimes I'm a little embarrassed about that. Um, difficult childhood that I went through. Um, my mom had some mental issues, and um, I had to kind of grow up and, and, and navigate through that. And the way I navigated through it was my writing and creating these characters who can do some of the learning for me. So the way that Raven came about was that my mom was, um, you know, she was very hard on all of us, um, but she was also divorced from my dad. And uh, they, there was some animosity between them, and she would disparage um, our dad to us. And so I always thought, you know, okay, what part of 
those bad things in my father are in me. So that's the question that I started with. And then, um, you know, if you're writing a book, you have to kind of amp it up a couple, <laughs> a couple of notches. And so the way I amped it up was, okay, what if I'm a homicide detective? I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to understand what kind of person I am. Um, what, if, uh, what if my dad was a serial killer? And that's how she was created. Yeah. Well, you don't get a whole lot worse than having a dad that's a serial killer as part of your baggage (laughs) to overcome. But, you know, I think that it's right. It's the lead that, you know, in alchemy, you turn and you spin it into gold if you can transform (laughs) yourself. I love that you took your own personal material in creating these characters, because to me, that adds, it, it tells me why they're so resonant. Um, and it's interesting to me that as a writer, you can, you know, learn from your own characters and by extension, maybe vicariously process your own stuff. Did you find that happening in the, in the writing of this book? I did. And it was so interesting because a lot of the, some of the scenes in the book, um, actually came from um, some of the scenes that, you know, some of my own life experience. But it's really interesting because when you're writing it, you don't think about that. Um, what happens is that um, somebody will point them out to you. Um, there'll be a certain scene in the book and they'll say, oh, remember that time there was that, you know, our, our house was on fire. Or remember that time that, and I was like, you know what, when I wrote that scene, I never... Um, really thought about that. So it's just kind of interesting how someone can point to you um, the life experience that you didn't realize that you put in the book that, that was there. Um, mm-hmm. And that happened in several places in the book. It's like a total immersion when you're writing. Um, tell us where we're reaching you this morning. You're, you live in Northern California, is that correct? Or, and what is yes, your life I do. like? I, yeah, what is your life like I, I, now? All right. I live in Modesto, California. Um, my day job, I am a, uh, uh, well, I just started at UC Berkeley as a um, technical pro- um, program manager, so I'm a complete computer geek, um, but I also do writing every chance I get on the side. So, um, northern, uh, but I grew up in Shreveport, a, a Louisiana, um, and also, but born in California, and then after that, I just bounced all around all over the place. It was a little, I was a bit of a nomad. (laughs) Right. Well, it happens. And, you know, you're on your own kind of hero's journey. I, I do really find that in this book, and I understand there's a sequel in the works, um, which pleases me no end. This hero's journey, she comes up against some real obstacles. And you're mentioning um, the question, is my dad in my head? Is my dad in me? Am I poisoned in a certain way am I is it always going to be that I will be this flawed character that can never be rid of the haunting memory of a man who was a serial killer I know your dad was not um but, no he wasn't <laughs> right we get along great right yeah <laughs> well, that's yeah. good but and I can also see the technical right Cal in the book I mean there's a you know there's a character in the book who's you know the 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 techno genius and he finds the erased hard drives and all the other, you know, interesting clues. So, and also there's a precision to it, um, you know, very left brain, right brain. I guess I'm, I'm really, I think right now, you know, this is like post-Halloween, middle of the election, mm-hmm. what's next? 
I feel like um, a lot of times we're wondering, you know, it feels very kind of spooky sometimes. The ancestors are close by, you know, are they proud of us? That was like, you know, the, the All Saints Day kind of um, woo-woo. But I, I do find this question of a penetrating character whose voice is in your head. Mm-hmm. A, a, a father, um, an ancestor. I think to some extent we all have that. We have somebody who's yeah. speaking to us at any given time. And mm-hmm. you made use of that inner dialogue. Um, is it something that, you know, were we to go back and look at your other writings, would we see that inner dialogue at work? Or is this something you brought to life just now? How did it evolve? Yes, and I think that we all carry something, um, uh, you know, our our ancestors in our head or these voices in our head. And I remember joking with someone and she goes, well, I have two. Um, and they, 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 they war with each other. And I'm like, two, I've got three. Um, and the other one is telling the other two to be quiet. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, there's that, that there's that, um, I think that we all carry those voices with us. And sometimes um, those voices are for good, especially for people that have been hurt. Um, those voices are for bad. They're continually holding you back. And I think that one thing Raven does, and I did for a long time in my life, was that I was trying to prove my humanity. And Raven goes through that book, um, and I believe that she's trying to prove that, you know, I'm a human being and I deserve some empathy and, and this and that. And that's something I've always felt, and I had to, like, search for that. You get that, right? You get that when you come into this world. There's You don't have to prove that you're human to anyone. You need to, like, be your authentic self. You need to, um, you know, do whatever you can uh, to, to to find, you know, your purpose for being here. But Raven is is all kind of screwed up in, in that way. She's trying to, um, you know, prove that she's a good person um, and that she's, that she's human, which I, I think that she's going on a little bit of a wrong path. And I don't know if I got far afield from your question. I probably did. I um, love, but, uh, I love the, I love the answer, meandering or not. I mean, I feel like you're, you, there's a kind of a overriding theme in the book of looking for the good in someone, looking for the good in ourselves. And I, I really feel as though, you know, Raven, you know, she makes it tough to do. Sometimes she's lying. She she, she's, she's lying to her, her cop partner, her police partner, who's the guy that, you know, has your back, Billy Ray, awesome cook, um, you know, in the Creole kitchen or, you know, in the shotgun house with uh, the frying pan in his hand. I mean, the guy is nothing but good news and cute to boot. And she pff, tells some bold face lies, you know, like to... <laughs> She's a survivalist, right? She is just trying to get to the bottom of, you know, what, what she's trying to uncover the, the murderer in what turns out to be a serial killer uh, loose uh, near Shreveport, Louisiana. Louisiana. I'm glad to know that that was um, a touchstone for you. But, I mean, she's even more naughty than we are. She's, she lies herself yeah. out of many situations in this book, and yet we're rooting for her. I, I wonder... Yeah. Like, how does that work? <laughs> I mean, how does that work? Did you do that consciously or how is this possible? No, I, I did not. Um, I, uh, I have a, 
in my earlier books, I wrote some, I wrote romantic suspense, and I had a really hard time, um, you know, crafting uh, uh, empathetic characters or characters that you can root for. Um, and I think at that time I was, uh, you know, you know, I was a little bit angry, um, and so all that. All that I think piled into that character, but with Raven, you know, I'm I'm enjoying life. You know, I've I've, uh, I've come a long way. You know, I still work and work on myself and um, work on uh, getting over whatever happened when I was younger. You know, I'm old now. You think I'd be I'd be done, but I'm not. And so, you know, it's <laughs> like um, when you're crafting a character, it's almost like uh, you know your character may be not like a lot of things, and they may be angry all the time, but you know. What do you like? You know, there are things you like. There are things that you, and I think they, you know, um, um, it, it found, those things found themselves in Raven. For one thing, she's fiercely loyal. I mean, she'll go to the bat, go to the bat for her friends. She has this um, moral compass. Sometimes it's a little bit wonky, but she does. There are some lines um, that she will not cross. And, and then, you know, but there, as you know, there are things that happen at the end of the book that question that. But you could, and she just kind of screwed up. And I think, um, you know, her growing up and, and watching some of the things that she did um, invo- evoke in the re- reader a kind of, you know, how can you not be sympathetic to a kid who um, witnessed some things that, you know, children shouldn't witness, you know? So I think that probably added a little bit to her likability factor. She saw her mother killed. Um, yes. She yes. saw her stepmother killed. Um, and there was there was attachment there. Um, in at times, I was thinking. I mean, how staggering all of this. I mean, because her father Floyd is in in her head all the time. And I had the privilege of listening to the audio book, which is narrated by one genius, Rachel Hempstead, and she has the voice of Floyd, the penetrating voice of the father, this pulsating serial killer voice that is your dad it's your dad in the end it's still your dad and yes. you know it's it's hard to believe that raven even like staggered through her life but as you say sometimes this raw material this trauma material is you know makes the best in terms of you got to be motivated then to put some kind of good out there and I think, you know, the thing that I, I think the thing that is lovable is she is kind of screwed up. She's she's really screwed up and she's trying to get to a plateau. And we so want her to get to that plateau, um, you know, and I think that's why we're rooting for her, for one thing. And we're also trying to see if she can outrun this voice of her father, Floyd. Uh, the other thing that, you know, kind of sticks like glue to Raven is these shame-inducing experiences because she has shame as part of her composite. So she, mm-hmm. she gets into a confrontation with another, with a black man, Quincy Trueblood, and she pulls the trigger. He is carrying an unloaded weapon. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it, there is an echo of Black Lives Matter there. And in the subsequent um, aftermath she has to participate or you know there is a a pr campaign by the police department to besmirch the victim 
I mean, how did all of this play into your into your head? Was this concurrent? I mean, has it, this has always been going on. Unfortunately, Black Lives Matter is not new. Yes. But did it play through your head as you were writing? It did. And Quincy Trueblood um, started off as an African-American character. But because I didn't want um, that, uh, you know, I, I guess I wasn't really trying to send a message. It was just something that, and that happened to Raven. So I, I made him a white character, and you probably uh, didn't notice, and, and that's okay because of all the, nice. the miasma, everything that's going on. But uh, I think that that came from two reasons. It's like one of those experiences that um, somebody points out to you after you write the book. And every single person in my family, including me, um, has been pulled over um, while, while we did nothing. And um, three of us, I had, and I've got two boys, um, had guns drawn. So it was my husband and my son. They were pulled over. Um, the cops drew their guns and, you know, made them pull their sweatshirts over their heads and walk backwards um, because they fit the description of some rape suspects. They were in their baseball uniforms and had just come from a baseball uh, game. My husband is a well-known baseball coach in Modesto. As a matter of fact, when one of the policemen saw who it was, he just started laughing. You know, that, and that was a hurtful. Um, believe me, I spent some time on the phone with the watch commander after that, but that, you know, that, so that happened. And then myself, when I was in Pleasanton, um, California, I was literally uh, pulled over twice. Once where um, I saw the policeman behind me, I saw him turn his lights off um, and follow me. I used to work, you know, swing shift and um, pull, pull me over and tried to like harass me. And I said, you know, I saw you pull, I saw you way back there. I saw you turn your lights off and I saw you start following me. So he kind of backed off because I knew he thought, I knew he knew his goose was cooked. It wasn't going to be an easy target. And then um, I had uh, another incident when I pulled up in my driveway. And next thing I know, there's officers surrounding my car with guns drawn. So I think that um, what I did is I think that experience that I didn't even realize uh, came through. And then I had my other son who's kind of funny. He's kind of oblivious. And I said, do you think you've ever been pulled over, you know, for driving while black? And he goes, probably. I just, you know, I just, I just deal with it. You know, he's, he's hilarious, but um, he doesn't, it, I don't know if it affects him or if he lets it affect him as much as we did, but he's never been pulled over with guns drawn. So that could be why he doesn't see the impact that we did. But anyway, and I think that that found its way into the book, um, for whatever reason. And another reason is that um, I teach project management. So um, sometimes, uh, you know, firefighters would want to take project management or um, and there are leadership courses that I'm in with uh, police police people. And there was this one captain, I'll never forget, um, and the previous night, he came to class the next day, he did have to um, shoot someone and he was torn up. I mean, it was, it sounded like a righteous shoot. The guy had a gun and, and whatever. And he said, you know, he had to make the decision. And he said, it is not like it is on television. It is not, you know, you shoot somebody and then you go, he should probably even been in class, but you know, you, and you go to work the same day. He said, this eats you alive. And you could tell he, and he was a really nice guy and he was really, he was really torn up. And I think they wanted to kind of marry those two, even 
you know, the, the Black Lives Matter and what's going on with um, the, the policemen, you know, and all that stuff is just inexcusable. But mm-hmm. still, at the core, we're all human beings, right? <laughs> at the yes. core of all this, I know that may be controversial to someone, you know, um, but we're all human beings and there's something happens to us, um, good or bad, when we make mistakes. And I think I kind of wanted to, to kind of put that in the book, um, however, subconsciously. Well, Faye, you wrote with authority of an African-American woman who, as just you said, that just happened. And, you know, I'm sitting here with goosebumps. I know that this happens, but it is gut-wrenching. We're going to have to take a break now. We're going to have to draw a breath. And we're going to come back with (laughs) Faye Snowden. And we're going to talk about how this works out, how these tensions play out, and how to write a gripping crime thriller. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion. Representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm, Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Faye Snowden, who's going personal and deep to create a character, Raven Burns, in a beautiful new crime thriller, A Killing Fire. Here's what other people had to say about it. Quote, Faye Snowden's A Killing Fire left me breathless. Driven by a complex, compelling female lead, the story twists with heart-pounding, raw energy against a lush Louisiana backdrop. I couldn't put it down. This is the best-selling author of (laughs) Unspeakable Things, as it happens. And uh, Raven Burns got a lot of unspeakable things going through her audio track. Um, Jess Lowry is the author. And another... um, publication Life of a Female Bibliophile said, quote, the novel was gripping, intense, and suspenseful. Everything I want in a crime fiction novel. I found this to be true. I found that once again, I came away thinking to myself, why do people often think that crime fiction is somehow a subgenre of novel mm-hmm. writing, a subgenre of fiction writing? 
Um, Dennis Lehane uh, is uh, a, an author that, you know, has written Shutter Island, um, Mystic River. He teaches mm-hmm. out here in St. Petersburg. I've gone to hear him many times. And he's said, you know, we just don't get the respect. It's like Roger, Roger Dangerfield. We just don't get any respect. But we have the last laugh, right? Because people love it. People crave it. Mm-hmm. And um, you, Faye Snowden, I mean, you would, just at a time when you think we don't need any more suspense, you've given us more suspense, and we even want more. Um, how does this dynamic work? Is there really, I mean, what do you say to people who sort of second-rate crime fiction writing? Um, I, 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 say, I say to people that, um, you know, writing is not about uh, crafting a beautiful sentence or... Um, creating beautiful prose, that stuff to me is poetry. If you want to write a poem, write a poem. If you want to tell, and I've done that, if you want to tell a story, tell a story. And, um, you know, you still need to know where the semicolons go or where the exclamation points and the periods and, and all that. But if you've got a gripping, um, compelling story that you want to tell, um, you, can, you can do that. And if you choose to do it through genre, just think about what that gives you, right? So if I'm writing a novel and I'm starting on page one and I'm going to type till, you know, page 365 and I don't have a framework for that novel, I'm kind of like trying to con- create something out of whole cloth. But what genre fiction does is it gives you this little these little bits and rules to go by, right? And I break most of them, but it gives you some rules. And then we can hang, like, um, you know, I break them, but you can, you know, you can break them and hang flesh. And then you draw people in. And then because you have that pre-work done for you, you can explore the big things, the huge things. And then you also, as an English major, um, you know, I studied literature throughout the ages, and um, at one point, you know, some of the novels that um, changed our society were considered, you can say, were considered genre fiction. Um, you know, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Uncle Tom's Cabin. You've got um, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. You know, uh, Stowe, we don't even know, we don't even need to say what, what her novel did. And then with Upton Sinclair with Meatpacking. Um, mm-hmm. changed how we looked at meatpacking and the way we consumed food. And then you can have the, uh, you know, Birth of a Nation, um, that silent film, which you can kind of consider it um, writing an art, um, where uh, the president, Woodrow Wilson, said that it was like writing history with lightning. I mean, he was wrong, but <laughs> but that's what he said. So all this, like, people think escapist fiction or genre fiction is not important. But if we go back in time... Um, we can see how important that it was, how important it was. So you, you, what you're saying is, it sounds like the, you, you get a kind of an arc, a broad brush of you know points that you can touch along the way writing crime fiction. You break all those mm-hmm. rules, you shatter all of that, and you make it Faye Snowden's book, which is much to our <laughs> relief. Um, and and correct me if I'm wrong. Would you say this is more? I mean, there's lots of action. There's lots of heavy duty action. I mean. We don't have a body count, but let's just say some bad things happen to people fairly often. And yet, I would say it's character-driven because these Mm -hmm. characters are so human. What do you say Mm -hmm. to that? What do you say to that? 
Yes, it, and it is, and a, and a good book. I mean, for example, somebody just wrote a thriller book, and it was just cliffhanger after cliffhanger, and it was just like these these characters that were flat and two-dimensional. You're not going to really care to read. You know, you'll, you'll watch an episode of Law and Order over and over, but I'm not saying those characters are flat. I love that show. But um, in, a, in, a, in a book, you want to you identify with the characters. So, yes, in a good, you know, good crime novel, um, to keep people reading, um, you're going to have to uh, make sure that they're that the character is, is um, the center of center of the action, and the decisions that the character makes drives the the plot of the book. So another thing about people say that is this plot driven or character fiction, uh, and literary is supposed to be character driven, and I think all of those um, lines are artificial. It's just a good, you know, tell me a good story. Is that in in any one of those books? Um, right. We'll sit by the fire and we're, we're going to hear a good story. You know, the thing is, too, the emotions of the characters. Um, she, Raven, of course, I am now like, uh, first of all, she's hot. She, she works out. She's physical. She is constantly wearing tight jeans, tight T-shirts, and she frequents the lingerie store. This is another side of Raven we didn't know about. Um but, you know, I just say to myself, again, what a great badass. And it's tough to come across, it's, it's infrequent, let's say, to come across strong female characters that are unapologetically badass, who are still inside themselves trying to find their conscience, trying to keep their moral compass, trying to, you know, get in touch with the good in life. Wow. I mean you were pretty fearless with this character. Uh, how, how do you feel about her? Is she going to live into the next sequel? Yeah. So um, I, I, when I was writing the book, I became really intrigued by um, how Raven saw herself and, and how she saw herself as part of a society, as a productive citizen. So, um, you know, in each Book. I mean, in this book, she had a decision to make, and she makes it at the end of the book. But in the next book, it's going to be the same thing. She's going to have a decision to make, and that decision will drive her closer to the person that she will ultimately turn out to be. And I still don't know if that's a person who falls completely off the cliff or if that's a person who's going to kind of, you know, take a couple steps back and and turn her back on, you know, all the lies and just the, the questionable morals and the integrity that she's been doing. So I don't know what's going to happen because, um, yeah, so that, that's so what glad. I'm going to explore in the, in the next book. Yeah. I'm so glad that you don't know, because I'm in suspense, that's for sure. You know, I've often heard actors interviewed saying, I don't like to play one-dimensional character. I want to play a flawed character, a deeply flawed character, because it's more interesting, it's more compelling, it's more who we are. Um, There's always something broken at the core somewhere along the line that we're trying to fix, fix fix us. Um, You know, I really believe, too, that this book is highly cinematic, and there's something about crime fiction where you are focusing on, you know, the hush puppies in the pan, and oh my God, the smells, and the Zydeco music, and the pouring of the water, and the sensual details. Do you 
ever think about it cinematically yourself? Are you thinking, I mean, are you open to that possibility? Do you think in those terms? How does that work for you? If if someone wanted to make this a movie, I would be jumping up and down for like a year. Um, But when I'm writing it, I don't even think about that. I just think about the the movement. um, And then I I just, and one thing people um, who like my writing but kind of criticize it a a little bit, um, especially mystery readers, sometimes they don't want all that detail. It's like, I don't want to hear about him whipping eggs in an orange porcelain bowl. (laughs) They just want to know what happened. I did. Uh, yeah, for me, yeah, it just brings the book alive, right? I mean, especially yeah. in, uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I like having those details. So and he's got the warm, kind of yeah, he's got the warm smile, an apron on. I mean, a man with an apron on, a warm smile, and a frying pan full of eggs. I mean, what is, I, this is, this is love. I mean, I'm yeah. glad that it remains, you know, sexual tension for the, for the moment with Raven. But, um, you know, she's, she's, um, she's got it all going. I mean, they're all firing on all cylinders. They, um, they experience these frissons and sometimes step towards and st- sometimes step back from them. There's a lot of female male energy in this. And um, I like that the Billy Ray, the, the, the man with the apron, he's, he's got a soft side and the female Raven, she's got, she's got the hard ass side. I mean, this is something, you know, what prepares you to, if anything is having boys or, you know, Faye, I mean, you're, you're really writing from a position of authority here from so many viewpoints, culturally, ethnically, and, but also gender wise, what informed your writing of these, of these male characters that are equally complex? The male characters? Mm-hmm. The male characters, um, uh, another thing, you know, when you, 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 and I hate to keep going back to my formative years, but they were formative. But um, I, I didn't have a lot of male presence when I was growing up because my mom was divorced. And um, uh, the men, she did not have a really good uh, experience, so she didn't like men when I was growing up. So, um, but when I, I was fortunate enough to leave Louisiana and I joined the Navy and then I joined a male dominated field, which is an IT and computers. And I met some of the most wonderful guys. Um, one was a friend. I don't even know. We lost touch, unfortunately, but, um, and, and you don't even know you're doing it until it's done. Right. Like I said, um, but his name was Sonny, um, Sonny James Moore. And he was, I think that is my Billy Ray. And, and I'm, as I'm talking about that, I'm, um, I, this is the first time I remember thinking it, but that was him. He was warm. He was funny. He was, um, and unfortunately I'm going to say this, but that meant a lot to me. Um, he was non-threatening. He was, um, he was just a really all around kind of good guy, full of integrity and warmth. And I think that's where I got, and I was, like I said, I was an angry kid. Um, and he kind of just, you know, you get that when you're being angry, you you know, the people that love you and, and you're being angry for no reason. And they're saying things like, say, say, so, you know, and I got that a lot from him. So he really kind of helped me kind of overcome some of that. And I think that's who Billy Ray is in the book. Yeah, so um, that's why I, I modeled that male character after. Um, so it was just kind of my experience. And I have another book, A Romantic Suspense, um, that I, you know, some of the guys that I met in the Navy and kind of saw a different side um, other than what I was 
what I had grown up thinking uh, really opened my eyes. And so, yeah. It opens your heart. It opens it opens you up, you know. It's a, it's a healing thing to meet a, a great guy that, you know, oh, my gosh, this is breaking my stereotypes. I'm completely now, um, you know, yes. just uh, reconfigured. My head's, uh, you know, this is really, really a very warm, a warm happening. But it's even funny to me that um, Sunny, okay, you know, like you have a thing with names, right? Because the, the book... The, the the guys in the book, um, Floyd, and, um, you know, there's oral justice. Um, there are names that are highly evocative. Um, you drew on, you know, and Sonny um, is, is, a, is a character that, you know, you lived with. Do you draw names? Do you just, how do you, how do you evoke the names that come into your characters? I actually um, do research because I um, I grew up and then this is I grew up with all these kind of different sounding names so I go and I kind of do research on um, some names that I think would fit my book and fit my character and I did that but I write short stories too and what I'm finding myself doing is using names of uh, my great grandma and my uh, and my dear my grandmother and people I grew up with and they're finding their ways into the book like this one sh- a short story I wrote um, called One Bullet, One Vote, um, the central character is my grandmother, Willie Mae Brown. And sometimes I wonder about, oh, my goodness. Um, but I think that you're right. They're highly evocative. And um, I think names, especially for African Americans, mean a lot because we weren't allowed in slavery to choose our own names. And mm. um, now, you know, you hear all these different, you know, these wonderful uh combinations and and I think that was one of the reasons why you have such flourishes and um, uh, uh, creativity when it comes to names in the African American community. That's just my theory. Um, so, uh, and I want to kind of keep that in the book, right? Names are important. I even even said that in, in, in I, one of the characters says that in the other book. Um, and then I think one of the clues, if I'm not giving away too much, um, hinges on somebody's name. So, yeah, yeah. I love names. I love names too. And I like the fact that you pointed out the agency of names, that naming yourself, it's, um, it should be a birthright. Um, and now it's become, you know, a creative process, a process of choice, a process of agency. And so let's continue. Let's continue in that direction. Um, I, I think, you know, we just have a minute to go um, before we have to take another a commercial break. But, you know, I think you're, you're really you're talking about getting at your past, getting at, you know, characters who have the ability to change our lives just by staring at you, just by calling out your name, Faye, you know, mm-hmm. Faye, get, get a hold of you. You don't even have to say get a hold of yourself. It's people who penetrate our psyches. And I'm glad that you've encountered these people because you've created these people on the page as well characters that um, will live with us, uh, not just because there's another book coming, but because I don't think they're going to let us go anytime soon. So if you want to be introduced to these interesting folk, they're in a book called A Killing Fire by Faye Snowden. We'll come back after the break and we'll talk some more with Faye about what makes Raven Burns tick, where she runs, whether she outruns her serial killer father, Floyd, and 
other matters that are hanging in suspense. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Back, everyone. We're here with Faye Snowden, author of three published mysteries with Kensington, Spiral of Guilt from 1999, The Savior, and Fatal Justice. She has published short stories and poems in various literary journals and small presses, including the African American Review, Calliope, Red Ochre, Lit Bay Area Poets, Coalition, and Oxham's Razor. A new book, A Killing Fire, published by Flame Tree Press, was released uh, just last year, and the sequel is underway. So I'd advise everyone to go back and get the backstory so we can be ready for this sequel. I'm telling you, it's gripping. Faye is also a member of the Mystery Writers of America. She serves as secretary to the National Sisters in Crime. And aside from her publications, she manages two boys, a husband, five dogs, three writing fellowships over the years. And today, Faye works and writes from a home in Northern California, has a day job, and um, is in tech. I mean, really quite a multidimensional Renaissance woman here, Faye. I... Um, I really commend you on the quality and caliber of this work. What would you say to an aspiring um, crime fiction writer? Are these kinds of, you know, fellowships, three writing fellowships, that's amazing. First, it's, the, it's your talent. Um, do these kinds of things exist? And do you offer your, you know, wisdom, your, your um, storytelling abilities through workshops at all? How can people reach you? And um, find um, I, out more. Yeah, I don't do uh, workshops um, yet. I, I I I plan to do some, but just that if you you know with writing and a day job, you can't find the time. Um, people can reach me through my website at facenoden dot com. There is a a place that they can contact me. Um, so that's where they can reach me. But I would just say to aspiring writing writers is that, that the first thing you have to do is get your story down on paper. Um, and then those voices inside your head, you know, um, you know, um, you know, kill your editor just for a little bit. Um, 
when you're putting that first story uh, down um, and then afterwards bring the editor back and then you guys, you and the editor can kind of work on, work on making it, making it a story. And then the other thing I would say is read, read mm-hmm. as much as you can, as widely as you can. Um, not just mysteries, but uh, what they call literary fiction, um, read poetry, read um, biographies, just, uh, just read everything. Just, I say that if you haven't, if you haven't already fallen in love with reading, fall in love with reading. Find a way to do that. I'm glad to hear you say that because um, it, it gives us, it gives us, um, we're in preparation when we're reading and it's something that, you know, it's easy to find the excuse not to find the time to read. Less so now with audiobooks, and you've got a great one. Did you select your narrator? She was so effective in these in capturing these characters. She was great. I, I tell you, the first time I, I listened to the story after she did it, and the first time I heard Floyd's voice, I remember the exact spot I was in. I, I was driving, and I almost like I almost like the car jerked to the right. I mean, I, I was going slow, but I was like so creepy she did a fabulous job i had um i they did send me some of her um you know i guess the audio samples and i said yeah she sounds wonderful um so yeah so that's how i um i kind of uh, approved it i have a feeling i wouldn't have been able to say no anyway <laughs> but oh. i wouldn't have i wouldn't have done it but yeah but they they were uh, courteous enough to let me kind of listen to it um and then uh, give my my seal of approval. It seems to me that she captured the Floyd voice, the the, the intuitive voice that was g- running as a tape through Raven. You know, the our detective hero heroine, flawed, deeply flawed, lying sack of shit sometimes character, who is nonetheless <laughs> fearless. Um, you know, she captured Floyd, that eerie. You know, and now we find out that we have. You know, we can use these voices in our head as material. Wow. Um, You know, and she really did go after that voice. It's a haunting character. It's a haunting voice. And I love that you say read and and fall back in love with books, even if we haven't found the time lately. Um, You know, we're still in COVID. We're still not meant to be, you know, socializing frantically. Grab a book. Grab this book. Um, and you'll really get into some interesting stuff, um, both plot-wise, emotion-wise, and shadow-side-wise. You're dealing with a character, you know, Raven Burns, she's dealing with her shadow side, the side that she doesn't mm-hmm. really like, the side that she's scared of, the side that scares us. What's she going to do next? What's she going to do with that terrified, terrifying side? It's part of the suspense, um, I wondered if you had psychological background into shadow side because you're intimately familiar with it, and I wondered if that was through research or what you're drawing on there. Yes, when I um, first started uh, going to college, I always wanted to be a psychologist, so I did study a lot of psychologists and um I think that uh, writers, and my dad was a writer as well. He wrote poetry exclusively, though. Um, but he always talked about um, writers being a, a, a student and as well as an expert of human nature because you're always watching. You're always watching people um, to kind of know what they're going to do. And then uh, there, 
and I said, I keep hating going back to this, but people that have had gone through tough times with tough people, um, one of the ways they survive is by watching people, right, and understanding what people are going to do next um, and understanding what that a person's, if you will, shadow side is going to do in order to stay safe. So I've, um, I, you know, I had that when I was growing up and then, you know, uh, coupled with um, the, the folk I studied in, in, in college when I, when, I, when I, my major was psychology, I think I was able to kind of, to add that. And I've always been fascinated by evil and how people treat each other because um, that really, I don't understand it. I don't understand why, um, you know, the, the Holocaust. I mean, just, I just do not understand it. And I think that um, me trying to understand how that level of evil can exist in the world um, helps me kind of uh, see that shadow side in people a little bit more than others may see them. I'm not saying that others don't, but they, but I, I, I'm kind of fascinated with it. Well, we've all had some question marks lately over evil that we've seen. And um, it does give you pause for reflection, um, hatred and, you know, raised hatred and things that are springing up, I think, because, you know, perhaps they're more encouraged or permissible um, in the current environment, which may evolve yet again. So um, I, I think I love that you're so fascinated by the subject of evil. It is a fascinating subject, and many people don't go there. Uh, Congrats to you that you do, and you go into it in such a, um, you know, kind of penetrating way. You're a student and an expert of life. And, you know, the observations in the book, I thought, really gave it life. At one point, Raven Burns and Billy Ray they have to go to the. They have to go be, meet with the suits at the hospital because there's some, um, you know, pharmaceuticals involved, and uh, we got to have a meeting, and we got to put a lid on a big brewing scandal that's going to come out and blow everybody's socks off, and careers are going to go up in flames. So we're sitting at the conference table, and you're making this observation that it's so shiny, the faces around the table, the suits, and Raven, they're they're upside down. You're looking at an upside down world, like you're seeing the reflections of everybody, not right side up, because there's so much deception going on and everybody's putting on a pretty face. Everybody's lawyered up and, you know, it's not what it seems, but you see this reflection. And I thought, you know, that is really a masterful touch and a metaphor that only a, you know, good writer, a good observer can come up with, you know. Moments that slide away from the rest of us that you've put into this book that, um, yeah, you're in an upside down world. You're in the world of the suits that are trying to make things look a certain way. But, you know, Raven's not going to tolerate that for long. Um, you, <laughs> you have a penetrating mind. You have a detective mind and a psychological mind. So I'm glad to hear there are real life uh, antecedents for that, real life reasons. Also, the small town setting. Talk to us about how incestuous it was. Everybody was in each other's pockets, each other's lives. How, how did that almost become a character, the, the small town life? Um, yeah, so I did uh, loosely, very, very loosely base the small town on where I grew up. Um, and, and I think that it, 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 it all came back to um, 
the fact, and then I, like I said, I'm interested in evil and, and that type of thing and what people do to each other. And um, the Caddo Parish, uh, Louisiana, where I grew up in Shreveport's part of Caddo, um, had the most lynching and uh, all of the, the, you know, in all of the United States. That's where the most lynching happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always, I'm also a, a, a fan of Faulkner's, um, and he kind of when he wrote his books it was kind of like the land you know the land was itself poisoned and um was was a character and i always been fascinated by that so i would have to say that um you know he, uh, faulkner's and his um you know the, the the land of the character the land as corrupted um and hot and and, and i always thought uh you know i think i was trying to do that a little bit in this book with bird's landing louisiana yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the um, corruption, the good evil, it's going on in the macro level in the environment. It's also going inside of everybody's head, particularly mm-hmm. our heroine, Raven Burns. Your um, characters, they're very convincing and you've written other genres. Do you think you found a home in this one? It feels like it to me. I Oh, thank you. I really, thank you. I really do. I really feel that, um, you know, I, I want to continue writing mysteries. It's just that, like I said, I love having that scaffolding and I just have to put the, you know, the, the walls in place or the flesh, if you will. Um, and I just love the fact that you can uh, create a great story and then explore all these things. Um, uh, you know, when I was younger, I did the romantic suspense thing. I don't or what people call women's fiction. I don't see myself doing that. Not that those books aren't great, um, but I just, uh, you know, that genre isn't great. I, I I still love reading it, but I don't see myself writing it anymore. I don't know if, so that's, I think, mysteries. And short stories, I'm really loving short stories right now. So... <laughs> Well, you have a cadence that's very quick. It's rapid fire. The dialogue is fast moving and, um, you know, you've, you've picked up the ear for it. So you, I can see you writing short as well as at length. Uh, we have only a couple of minutes left and it's amazing how quickly the time flies. So having written about a ritualistic murder of a socialite, um, you, you know, you are now examining evil, your favorite subject. And it's a subject that we best not shy away from at our own peril. Thank you for bringing it to into the limelight. Any last thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? We have about a minute to go. No, just thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you, Diane. Well, I can tell you that Faye Snowden um, creates a conversation in our own minds by reading her book, by wondering what stance would we take in that in that position? Where would we be on the line of evil and good? Where would we be in the line of truth-telling or lying or fibbing just to get through the situation, even lying to your boss, the police chief? If you want to get your hands on something gripping, get your hands on a killing fire. It's a great read, teaches you a lot, and is painless at the same time because there's lots of sexual tension, great food, great music, Lots of steamy, lush environment and things that will really make you scratch your head about ourselves and the world. Thank you, Faith Snowden, for dropping in. It's been a real pleasure. Your book rocks our world in the best possible way. 
Thank you to our engineers, Matt Widener and, and, and Aaron Keller, our producer, Robert Giolino, and most of all, thank you to you, our listeners. Take care, everybody, this week. Try to excavate the truth. Try to find the inner good in everyone, including ourselves. And until next week, be well and be good. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then. 